Area 941 podcast are produced and distributed by Community Powered 94.1 KPFA Radio. Please help support Area 941 at kpfa.org. This is the Area 941 Radio Walensky Podcast. I'm Richard Walensky, and we're talking about books, about theater, about film, about television, and from time to time, even about KPFA, Pacifica Radio. My guest is Barry Lopez, whose latest book is Horizon. Barry Lopez has written several books. There are 10 novels or works of fiction seven nonfiction books, including Horizon. There's also a couple of books you've edited, primarily a travel writer, but I think of yourself more as a traveler than a travel writer. Well, things change for every writer from the beginning. Uh, Are you writing all the time? Is it your desire to become a writer or be a writer? So if I look back over 52 years of published work by now, I guess what I see is somebody who was always a writer and had a deep concern for language and the effect of language on people. And I kept retreating to the metaphors of my childhood in Southern California, which was all outdoors. And so I was drawn to those uh, scenes uh, in my effort to write about something bigger, if you would, the big questions. So the simple thing for me, I guess, is the noun without the adjective. I am just a writer. What I recall from our previous interviews, which happened several years ago, is that I would always walk away with a sense of optimism that I didn't have going in. And I'm not sure what that was about, but I always felt that optimism Will I feel that optimism when we're done here today? Has anything changed in Barry Lopez over the past couple of decades? I think that, you know, looking at this book, looking at Horizon, my effort was to write uh, in a straightforward way about what I had encountered in the world over a period of some 25 years, a lot of it not good. And my, my challenge to myself was to express that without pulling a punch, but create a book that left you with a sense of optimism, of enhanced self-worth, and with a sense of possibility in your own life and, if you will, in the life of the nation. I've had plenty of opportunities to enter a world of despair and cynicism. So far, I haven't gone there. I've seen it from the edge. It doesn't look very appealing to me. So I try to find for a grown-up mind, if you will, not, a, not somebody inclined toward Pollyannish speculation about the future. I've, I've tried to find a way to speak with other adults that doesn't leave you in darkness. This particular book, Horizon, is very different from your other works, which were generally much shorter and more focused on one area. Right. This particular book takes us to six or seven different places, depending upon how you want to look at the book, over different periods of time. And you're pretty vague in terms of when you visited. Had you written 
extensively about each of the places we talk about? Because it seems like you have. You know, I signed a contract for this book in 1980. I was about to say 1889. It feels like that. In 1989, I knew exactly what I wanted to do. If you pick that contract prose up and looked at it today, you'd see that this is the same book uh, 30 years later. I said to somebody the other day, the book worked on me for 25 years, and then I worked on it for five years. I wanted to explore some big questions, and I wanted to be sure that I was familiar with the dimensions of the place, each place that I wanted to set those questions up. I had no intention to be vague about when I visited what, but in the case of Galapagos, I was in those islands on four different occasions, and I was in Antarctica on six different occasions. And it seemed to me, which I say in an, in a, in an author's note, that the best thing would be just to tell the story and not burden the text with, and then in 1921, and then, and then, but before that, all of that language, I didn't want to get anywhere near it. It, it really slows the narrative around or down. How many times were you in northern Canada near the North Pole? Oh, my gosh. I don't know. 25 times or something. Really? Yeah, I continue to go back up there. There's something in that landscape, like there would be in desert landscapes, that makes me want to go and sit for a while. And so you've been there more than, say, Antarctica. Antarctica is a, a much more difficult place to get to. And if you go to the American base at McMurdo, that's one major difficulty. But where I wanted to go was further out into the Transantarctic Mountains. So I developed friendships with glacial chemists and other scientists where I could actually sign on as a field technician and be out there for weeks at a time. Foul weather. Cape Fowlweather, yes. That is the first part of your book. There's a memoir before that, but that is near where your home is, correct? Cape Fowlweather is about 100 and some miles from my house, yes. So you travel over there quite frequently. I did for a period of time. This book was more intuitive, I think, than any other book. I arranged, if you will, to encounter certain situations, believing that if I did, I would have one more piece of the puzzle of the book. Well, in essence, then, as you were traveling, writing other things, right. this book was accumulating oh, yes. separately. Right. When I signed the contract for the book in 1989, everybody understood. I understood. My agent, Knopf, Everybody understood I was not going to write this book tomorrow. I needed to grow and learn more and experience more of the world. And I would get to a point where I felt, okay, I can sit down and actually write what I said I wanted to write. So that was about five years ago. Uh, and in between that point and 1989, I, you know, I wrote, I think, six other books and continued to travel heavily. There was something in getting out of the familiar world of, that I lived in that fed the idea of this book. What happens if you let go of everything that um, you're familiar with and just plunge in where sometimes you're not wanted, 
or where you don't speak the language or where there are no urban amenities, if you will. And sometimes, as we've learned in Horizon, where you're not even particularly wanted. Yeah, I don't ever stay in a place where I'm not wanted. But I think there is a knee-jerk reaction to a white person coming into a remote uh, region that is the province of, of traditional people. People are very suspicious, and you have to reveal yourself and be vulnerable in such a way that they can make a decision that, that you're looking for, which is to say one way or another, it's okay for you to stay around. Barry Lopez, the book itself, Horizon, is broken into these various segments. We have foul weather, which is Oregon, but mostly your ruminations about a lot right. of different areas. Uh, then we move on to northern Canada, right. where you've gone several times. Then the Galapagos, then uh, eastern Africa, and finally Australia and Antarctica. Right. Australia, you're pretty clear that you've gone to different areas at different times. Mm. Each of these places, though, takes us into a different segment of society and a different area of ecology. But one thing they all have in common, over this period of 30 years, climate change, particularly in the last decade, right. has transformed the scenery. It has. You know, I see the evidence of climate change at my own residence in the woods in Oregon. I guess I have no patience with people who want to argue about global climate change. It's here, and in relatively few years, it could force a world that is not welcoming to human beings. It, it is as much an emergency as anything we've ever imagined, like, uh, you know, invasions from Mars or something. But people don't take it seriously enough. This should be the number one topic on the table in every nation for policy development. What are we going to do to get through this? So in all of the years that I was traveling, I, I saw climate change in 19... 87, 87 or 88, I was in Antarctica with a, a group of scientists drilling for ice core, which was providing the records that showed that climate change was accelerating and would present a clear and present danger even at that moment. But here we are nearly 40 years later, and we're still trying to get somebody to listen I mean, people who are climate activists are still trying to get others to listen. It isn't even a question of listening at this point. It's a question of action. Ab and, absolutely. And there's nothing being done. Nothing. In uh, fact, we've taken several steps back. We have. And, you know, this all becomes then a political question. And, you know, nobody needs me to line out for them the political question. It, this is a fact of life. Global climate change is a fact of life. And it's part of the backdrop for the book and part of the tension, I think, in the book between what once was and what is now is generated by the seriousness of, of global climate change. 
it will get far worse than it is now in terms of disrupting agriculture, employment, uh, residents. I mean, what are, what are people in Miami going to do when Miami itself is underwater? What is the most striking single element of climate change that you yourself saw? Depends on where you are. I would say the most dramatic changes are taking place in the Arctic and to a lesser degree in Antarctica. So if I'm visiting uh, Inuit villages on the west coast of Greenland, I'm sitting around talking to people who are discussing how difficult hunting is because freeze-up comes three, four, five weeks after the usual time, and the breakup of the ice occurs weeks ahead of schedule, if you will. That means that the kind of hunting that you do in order to feed your family and the way you hunt is all affected by global climate change, and what it forces is a social reorganization, a different plan about how to survive. Did you see it in the Galapagos? I'm sure it was there. It was too subtle for me, and it was not something that I was trying to find. What I was looking for in Antarctica was to examine the whole question of what we mean when we talk about immigrants. This is a, the Galapagos is an archipelago that's become a monument for evolution, and now is there's a great concern about the importation of exotic animals and 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 uh, trees and plants. So I wanted to listen to those conversations. Who is it that decides these are the originals, they're good, and let's protect them, and everything that comes in afterward, no matter how it gets there, is bad, is by definition bad. Where do we get these ideas? So I'm in the Galapagos talking about exotics and indigenous life and I know what's echoing in the paragraphs I write is all that we hear in the United States about who has a right to be here. You're listening to an interview with Barry Lopez, whose latest book is Horizon. I'm Richard Walensky on book waves. In the foul weather section, you're talking about reforesting. And of course, when you're building a forest from clear cut, right. it's not the forest. It's, no, it's a woodlot. It's, the question for us is, how do you maintain a habitat so that life can flourish? And a lot of what we do is, is if you will, decreate the environment so that one organism, Homo sapiens, does well for a short time, it turns out. Some of this is even more obvious in Australia, which has constantly been burning. I mean, that climate has completely changed. Uh, have you seen that over the years there? Oh, yeah. Fires are, uh, it's not a problem, but they, uh, they occur today as opposed to 50 years ago with spectacular size and destruction. These are forest fires that are as terrifying as the fires that took out paradise. They come very quickly. They destroy everything. And fires in Australia are an expression of global climate change. But you know there are, there are lots of changes taking place on the planet in, on which we live 
that are not about global climate change or they are the result of uh, global climate change or, or the warming of the planet. And those things, too, are having a profound effect, but much less visible. For example, the tundra in the northern hemisphere is melting at a crazy rate. And as it does, it, it sends methane gas, which is 10 times more uh, effective as a greenhouse gas than is CO2. So wherever you go, whatever you look at, you're looking at the the change that's taking place faster than anybody thought it would. But again, in Horizon, I, that was part of the background, but that's not what I was really writing about. As I was reading the book, I would suddenly stop, read a page and a half, and wander my house for 10 minutes, if that makes sense, just thinking about what you were talking about. Yeah. One of the issues that got me stopped was you're talking about Richard Leakey and the search for man's evolution. Mm -hmm. And suddenly, there's a segment where you talk about somebody, another writer, who sees this writing on evolution to be more about the person writing it and the hero journey right. than about evolution itself, about how narratives are created. Right. Well, this was a, a humanist who is looking at the narrative created by paleoanthropologists and saying there's a paucity of evidence and yet you've created the story about the origin of man that it, it's not warranted based on the evidence we have. What it is is a story of the culture hero who is Homo sapiens. So you move quickly through various kinds of hominids and dismiss them all as uh, inconsequential creatures in your quest to arrive at the end and the great hero Homo sapiens. And of course, paleoanthropologists went crazy when that woman's um, thesis was published. They were saying, absolutely not. You know, we, we don't deal in narrative. We write only what the evidence dictates, which she was saying is not going to be the case at all. You seem obsessed a little bit because it, it's throughout the book with James Cook. Why? I wouldn't say obsessed. Cook, he's a marker of some sort in the flow of time. Before Cook, people who were sailing would find a place and note, make a note about where it was, but they had no dependable way to determine longitude. So even though they'd identified it and been there, nobody else could find it. With Cook, who took pains to be precise about longitude as well as latitude, when Cook found a place, he gave it coordinates that allowed somebody else to come and find it right away. He also represented a, a kind of attitude toward the world, which was uh, imperial. Whatever he found, he claimed, even though there were already people there. So in some ways, he represents the darkness that comes with colonization. But he was also a brilliant navigator, and he sailed around the world almost three times, and he described the planet that we think of as the norm today. So I followed him. I ended up, you know, not always intentionally, 
at the place where he was murdered and uh, at the place where he uh, was part of an effort to measure the distance of the sun from the earth and where he came ashore in, in Australia for the first time at Botany Bay. And I followed him and a couple of other characters to give some shape to this idea of what it means to explore and how the explorers fix uh, an idea of what's important to look at. There's also a point where you go, you know, on the yes, he was an imperialist. On the other hand, he did respect other cultures in a way that a lot of his contemporaries did not. Right, and, and that's true, too, with the conquistadores. There were good and bad, really bad people among them. But the question is not who was good and who was bad. The question is what did we get out of all of this, which is the hostile takeover of the Americas by Europeans? How has that played out for us? And I would argue not very well. In Horizon, I'm trying to I – I have no interest as a writer in – telling other people what to think. But I do hope that, that minds that, that are attracted to this material will explore it in a way that will prove useful for them or enlightening for them. One of the problems I had in reading the book was, as I said, I would get a few pages into it, put it down, and my brain would go in different directions right. as far away as possible. And I'd go, oh, I have to come back to the book, which I guess is kind of the intention yeah. in a way. It's getting people to start to see and think. Right. I don't do well with small talk. <laughs> <laughs> so it's natural for me to write in a way that is broad and I hope deep. And some people will move through it very quickly. Other people will have a stop-and-go relationship with the book because they want to think about what's on their own minds. It doesn't make a difference to me. I guess my general approach is to believe that whatever it is we've gotten ourselves into with global climate change and politics and the rise of strongman governments even here in the United States, it's troubling for many people. What in the world is going on? How is my family going to be uh, affected? And what kind of future can I imagine for my children or my grandchildren? So this book is an effort to look at that horizon that's out ahead of us together and wonder about what might be possible and to create an atmosphere in which the human imagination can see some other answer than an answer that proved so bad, which was colonization, to take people's country away from them, kill them, and turn whatever they had in terms of occupancy of a country into a money-making machine of one sort or another. It's crazy, and we did it. We did it on an enormous scale. I'm talking about we Europeans. And we killed millions upon millions of people to realize this dream. And now that we have, it looks like we don't have what we thought we would get. There's a question that you ask. It's clearly a rhetorical question. Uh, and maybe you're quoting someone else where you say, why is it that business and government question scientific research? And it suddenly occurred to me, 
putting aside everything else, it's a very, very big question that nobody just simply asks, what is going on? Business and government question science or you or me because they sense that what you have to say means them no good. And that's exactly the kind of question I want to rise up in this book. Everywhere I go, you know, I can recall a couple of evenings in Kabul when the war was heavy and you had to be escorted everywhere, thinking that this is as socially disturbed a place as I've ever been in my life outside of an actual war zone. And the effort to care for people, provide for people, was always being carried out on a small scale by women and men who understood in the way that elders understand how to take care of their people. Government played no discernible role and business played no discernible role. Business is in the business of making profits. The damage to human beings is considered unfortunate but collateral. So if you're looking to survive in stressed environments like that, you can't turn to government and you can't turn to um, businesses of one sort or another. The only way you can ensure survival is if people take care of people. And that's a local activity that then spreads to other local social units. But the, the idea of flying in with satchels full of money to sort something out, which we did in Vietnam and which we did in the Middle East uh, and which we're doing today in Afghanistan, that doesn't work. So sooner or later, you ask yourself, what in the world are we going to do about these people whose major concern is keeping their enterprise going, their business or their government? It's the survival of the government or the survival of the business that's uppermost in those people's minds. Which, of course, brings us back to the reality of, of Trump world, in essence, which runs so counter to what I see as human impulses, though, of course, it is human impulse as well. Right. I mean, there's a, there's a great contradiction going on in how we, all of us, deal with our own lives and the lives of our country. I don't have an answer, and it scares me where we can go because we have to find answers and quick. Yeah, we do have to find answers. We have to find them quick. And one danger we run is believing that somehow con controlling this child in the White House, this petulant, uh, envious, angry, self-satisfied individual, that if we can do that, we'll be okay. Well, no. The only way you're going to be all right is to forget the fellow. And that means um, just unplugging from the reality that he's trying to enforce in this country, to just not cooperate. I mean, what would happen on national news shows if all of his tweeting and his yelling and his outrageous statements on every topic under the sun, which is his effort to keep himself in the news, was just not reported? What if you only reported the people suffering directly from his directives or
people who were legitimately suing him, like all of the, the students who made the mistake of signing up for Trump University and had to go through the humiliation of uh, suing him. And then, you know, as an afterthought, he pays $25 million fine. And instead of being despised by people in his own country, people shrug it off, you know, well, that was a business investment that didn't work out. But there's no compassion for all the young people whose lives and whose careers were stolen by this man. So the short answer is you have to imagine a way to forget this man. If you're, if you're sitting there thinking, we have to do this and we have to do that for 2020, no. <laughs> because whatever he is and whatever he is trying to perpetuate is not the answer to our problem. The, the only way to deal with them, I think, is to forget about them. Just some person who is ignorant, doesn't know anything, makes stuff up, right. doesn't look for anything, and yet it's reported as if these pronouncements matter, and they don't. No, they don't, but you, you run a news program like CNN or something like that, I don't watch it anymore because I can, it, it, he is, whatever he's done, becomes the major story for the evening. And if you read The Guardian or some other major newspaper in the world, there's a, a, a long report about something that's very, very hopeful. And do you want to hear about that or do you want to hear about how, why, or whatever this jackass had in mind when he said that, you know, the wrong horse got the prize. Oh, my goodness. It is pathetic. The desperation for attention is pathetic. I'd like to ask you, Barry Lopez, about some other people and events. Somewhere in the book, you do mention that and it gets your goat. The difference between a stone and a rock. Oh, that was just a passing <laughs> observation. I, st I stayed in a remote New Zealand camp uh, in one of the dry valleys in the Transantarctic Mountains and was doing my conscientious best to interview all of the science scientists. And when I was leaving, a woman took me aside, a geologist, and she said, you know, you're inexcusably confused about the difference between a rock and a stone. You are using them interchangeably, and that is not the case. A rock, she said, is something that has never been handled by a human being or put to any human use. A stone, on the other hand, has been, and that's why it's called a paving stone or a gravestone or a stone arch, or etc. So I said that I was very glad to be uh, uh, informed about the difference between a rock and a stone. And I, I didn't ask her, so what do you do about a rock garden? Shouldn't that be a stone garden? You know, it's just an example of the kind of silly things that we sit around arguing over. But it, it's a good one, and I and as I say in the book, I did use it a few times just to annoy people who were <laughs> self-righteous and self-important. There's a paragraph in the section on Antarctica where you talk about being at the South Pole, that just off from the South Pole is a barber pole, right. and there's some other stuff going on in different right. areas. 
I didn't get a sense, maybe I'm wrong, that there was any awe in how you were describing it. And I'm thinking, I'd be standing there going, holy cow, I'm at the South Pole. Well, I, I do write about the pole in that way. I've been there several times. And one time we were camped about 20 kilometers from South Pole. So it was part of a working environment. It's an abstract notion that there is a South Pole. You can't see anything. On January 1st every year, somebody from the U.S. Coast and Geodetic Survey shows up there by plane and takes a lot of readings and then drives a stake into the ground where the South Pole actually is located. But the next year, it'll be someplace else because you're standing on ice and snow that's two miles deep, and it's moving all the time. So where the South Pole is, as far as the planet is concerned, in the bedrock below, it stays right where it always has been on and the axis of rotation for the planet Earth, but the ice covering it moves on. It's on its way to the, uh, to the Antarctic Ocean, the Southern Ocean. What's awe-inspiring for me at, at South Pole is, you know, a lot of, uh, there's a lot going on there, a lot of research going on there that is, for me, breathtaking. And I, and I do go into some of what scientists are doing there. But it's, you know, it's a kind of tourist thing. There are very few tourists that ever get to South Pole but when they come as dignitaries on a special flight and land there, they all race to the South Pole to have their photographs taken. It becomes such a hullabaloo that the National Science Foundation put up a barber pole and put a semicircle of flags of the 12 original signatories to the Antarctic Treaty. And so that's where everybody went to get their photograph taken. And most of the time, it's really bloody cold. So nobody wants, they want to get their photograph taken there and then get inside, inside <laughs> one of the buildings. But if you're living there and working there every day in very cold temperatures, the whole thing is kind of an amusement. And that's why people who come to work a long season at South Pole bring the stuff they do, which are bus stop signs from from Boston and signs that say no lifeguard on duty, etc. And, you know, tons of plastic flowers and pink flamingos that are all stuck in the snow there. It, you know, it's just a kind of an amusing thing. On the other hand, you do mention that things seem kind of flattened out, that, that the landscape, they are. They are. Yeah, the, you know, we think of the world as, a, or the planet as a sphere but here's some what H.L. Mencken called out-of-town language. It's an oblate spheroid, which means that it's spherical, but it's compressed at the poles. So where you might be able to go and stand in a desert in middle latitudes and see three miles, something three miles away, at the pole, you can see something about five miles away. Can you actual is this something that you just happen to know or is it something that if you're there you notice? Well, you would notice it when you were there if you had seen on a on a map that this building 
where solar research was going on was five miles away, then you'd say, oh, my God, that really? But the air is incredibly clear, so the image of something five miles away is startling because it's razor sharp. The the other element is the one time I was in south of the equator in Peru, I noticed that the stars, what you see, you're looking directly toward the Milky Way, whereas we're looking more away from it. On the South Pole, are the stars so bright as they are in Peru that you actually at night, you can see as you would moonlight? I've never been at Pole in winter. What I could say is that if you were at South Pole staring up at in the middle of winter, the stars would be rotating as though they were all, this is very difficult for me to imagine, they don't rise and set on a 24-hour schedule like they do here for us in middle latitudes. Their rhythm is 365 days. So if you were looking at a star, um, you could stare at it all winter and it would never set. What you were referring to, which is how bright it can be in the middle of winter with all of that starlight, that, that is true to some extent. But you can also see that in unpopulated places in the Canadian Arctic, for example, where the stars reflecting off a surface of snow and ice create enough illumination to navigate in the middle of winter. Is there any particular place that you, Barry Lopez, when you go there, you get the greatest sense of awe? No, I wouldn't say the greatest. It's kind of impossible to imagine. I have felt a sense of speechless awe in hundreds of places around the earth, um, including my own my own backyard, which is in a temperate rainforest in Oregon. The question is not so much what is the most overpowering place, but at what place are you willing to be most vulnerable? The more you open up to the world you're looking at, the more you will be struck by things that bring up that sense of awe. So, you know, a lot of people can go to places that you and I might just, we're just standing there slack-jawed looking at whatever it is, and others are looking around with the camera in one hand and, uh, you know, a hamburger in the other, saying, I don't know, I don't know, Was this, this is it, this is the big deal? Because they're not open to it. What I've noticed is that sometimes it's best just not to take out your phone to take a picture. Yeah, you know, I I worked as a professional landscape photographer until 1981, and I put the cameras down. I've never picked them up again because I was a writer and I was developing a bad habit, which was to photograph something that I thought I would forget. I had to really train myself again to not forget what you've seen. So I'm always made nervous by how the relationship with a place is often disrupted by somebody who's got to get a certain kind of photograph. And, you know, this is condescending of me, but I often wonder whatever happens to all of those photographs. I mean, somebody taking hundreds and hundreds of photographs on a vacation, do do they actually come in back into your life in any way, or do they 
just live all all of them live up there in the cloud. When I was in um, Laos uh, in February, we went to a um, waterfall near um, mm. Long Prabang, which was one of the most beautiful places I'd ever seen. And I took photos mm -hmm. because everybody was taking sure. photos. But in the end, what I remember more than that was getting in the water and feeling the water and feeling little fish mm -hmm. biting my feet. And that you can't take a photo of that. No. And, it, and the memory of it brings it home to you in a way a photograph might not. Barry Lopez, you have seven places here. If you had an eighth, what would it be? As I said earlier, I, I've been to a lot of places, you know, to 70-some countries. What I was interested in was these large-scale questions, and I knew I could explore them in these uh, six places, whatever how you count. There are other places that I want to go, but I'm older now. I, it's more difficult for me to travel, and I, I'd, I'd go in an instant to a lot of places, to Mongolia uh, that just pops to mind. I'd love to go back to Australia, to several places in Australia that I never saw. I'd love to go to Patagonia. Um, that's a place often on my mind. I've never been to West Africa. Uh, so, you know, I've got my list of places that I hope one day I can go. But what I've found over the last 50 years is the places that I've gone to, which were, um, they were explored, but they hadn't been visited very often, are all now so heavily visited that you, you feel like you're in some sort of carnival display of celebrated places, people with bucket lists and things like that. And that takes a lot of the charm out of the places. So. I've been happier to go to places nobody's much interested in and sojourn there. Uh, Paul Theroux told me once that whenever he travels, and he travels a lot and writes about it, the places he avoids and the places he tells other people they should avoid are the tourist spots. Yeah. You know, what you're looking for is intimacy, and you can't get intimacy in a mob of hundreds of people. It, it just can't happen. Which is a shame, I guess. But on the other hand, everybody, people get to see places that they wouldn't have otherwise seen. So, right. you know, but I, I don't know, for me, I'm kind of torn because I haven't been that many places. Well, the question you have to ask yourself is what are you looking for? You know, if you want to be able to sit and you know, sit down and talk to somebody about when you were in Paris or, you know, when you were in riding camels in the Sahara or when you were at the South Pole, blah, 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 that's not the same thing as saying, I am weary and I feel this exhaustion taking me over and I don't feel a sense of hope about my own country. I need to go someplace and recover my sense of possibility and my sense of enthusiasm for life. And then that's why you go to whatever the places you go to. Your, your effort is to take care of yourself, not to participate in some contest about who's seen the most countries. Barry Lopez, Horizon is out and you're 
talking about another book now. Do you have any any elements? No. <laughs> huh? no, I don't want to talk about it. You know, this book is out, and I'm traveling, and I want to support it, and I hope people enjoy it and um, that it opens up a few doors for them. But th- the next book for me is something that's incubating, and I will talk in the fall with my editor and publisher and my agent about it. But until then... Um, you'd have to wrestle it out of me, Richard. I'm just going to hold on to it tightly and not let anybody see it. Feedback on this and other Radio Walensky podcasts is appreciated. You can write to bookwaves at hotmail.com and feel free to search out other interviews at bookwaves.com or on the kpfa.org website. Until next time, I'm Richard Walensky on the Area 941 Radio Walensky podcast.